You are listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom. Soul Searching is a journey where I engage with faith leaders and academics to explore deep questions of meaning. Questions that all of us ask at some point in our lives, such as, why are we here? What is right and wrong? Is there good and evil? Is truth relative or absolute? Is there life after death? And to help us in our journey this evening, we welcome Larry Haslam, former Baptist minister. Larry, welcome. Thank you, Neil. Um, So, Larry, you've been working, you worked in the Baptist Church and also the Presbyterian Church. And can you tell me what's the difference between those churches? Yes, I'll do my best with that. Let me tell you a little bit about my background in Baptist first. Please. And uh, I've realized that uh, life provides many opportunities for changes And in most of us, in our lives, we're changing all the time. Mm -hmm. And today, many of my statements, most of them will be general, but some will be specific. I literally was ordained in 1961. Mm -hmm. I know that's been a long time. (laughs) And I served in several ministries, taught school, and uh, graduated from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And I was on the the staff of the Kentucky Baptist Convention while I was in seminary, working in their camps and conference centers full-time. And then I served 32 years after seminary in the National Baptist staff. Wow. Four of those years, I was a national consultant, and 27 of those years, I um, was the executive director of Glorietta Conference Center, which is very close to Santa Fe. And... um, after retiring, I was able to do better, uh, th- well, not better things, but different things. I was on the faculty for teaching ministers to do intentional ministry, and I did three of those in different churches. Right. And then a request came for me, to me. There are many small Presbyterian churches in northern New Mexico, and they need assistance. They need someone who can be a pastor who mm-hmm. can preach, who can uh, serve communion, who can baptize, who can moderate sessions. And I've been involved doing that since 2009. Mm-hmm. And um, a little bit of difference between the two denominations. Yeah. This is where it gets general. Okay. <laughs> um, one thing that's not different, we're both worshiping and serving the same God. Okay. And But the educational requirements, Baptists have no education requirements. I had not graduated from college when I was ordained. Huh. When right. I grew up in a Baptist church, I, had a, I never had a pastor that had finished high school. Wow. Presbyterians are very stringent. There's years of training and schooling before they can become uh, a minister, be ordained. Now, the authority in the local church, in a Baptist church, it's an autonomous church, and most all decisions can be made there. Mm-hmm. Occasionally, the denominations gets involved if there's some unusual decisions made right. in the definition of the denomination. Presbyterian, the national is called the General Assembly of Presbyterian Church, USA, and then there's local presbytery that's uh, in in New Mexico, there's one from Albuquerque, a Presbytery from Albuquerque North, and basically one the South. 
And then the local congregation can make some decisions too. But is that more is that more top down? Yes, it is. It definitely is. See, that's interesting for me because when you're talking about the um, I guess the level of education of, yeah. of clergy in the two, it's interesting that the Baptist community, from what I understand you're saying, the Baptist community doesn't demand any educational requirements, but is much more um, bottom up. Yes. Um, whereas the, and you'd expect it to be the other way, wouldn't you? That, yes, there's many things in both denominations you would expect to be okay. different ways. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, in in uh, interfaith mm. things, mm. Baptists do some, but not a great deal. Presbyterians are much uh, involved in interfaith cooperation, and both have male and female ministers, but there's a big difference. In Baptists, the females are general in a lower – that's a bad term – lower uh, ministry mm-hmm. where – there's probably in the uh, 30 or 40,000 Baptist churches, there's probably 25 women ministers that are the top ministers. Right. The rest of them, that's all men. Right. Now, in Presbyterian, men and female, and there's good percentage of each of those doing a great thing. So I guess I have to ask uh, – where do these come from? So firstly, the interfaith perspective. As you know, I'm the president of the Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa right. Fe, and we're trying to reach out to right. many more communities to try to bring them into interfaith work. So why is the Baptist church not so much involved in interfaith work, and why is the Presbyterian church so much more involved? And when I when I ask that, I'm not asking to put one down in any way, shape, no, no. or form, but rather, is there a theological perspective behind this? What's What's the underlying reason for this? There probably is some basis of foundation for that, but basically Baptists in many areas are so large, they say we can do all we need to do. Right. And Presbyterians, not nearly that large, and they say we believe things like uh, uh, justice and uh, some of the big issues our country is facing now, they're more involved in that. And, and in terms of the role of women yes. in, these, in these two different churches, again, is there a, a theological basis or a scriptural basis mm. or a way that scripture is particularly read um, that, that leans one towards more inclusion or one towards less inclusion of women in, in higher roles? Yes, I think the Presbyterians look at a passage in Acts that says there's no difference between the Jews and the Gentiles, the males and the females. Ah. And Baptists would tend to look more where it said that men don't teach women. Now, that's an old thing, so I doubt you'll see that printed today, but I believe that was the foundation to begin with. Men don't teach women? Well, that was the start, yes. I, I'm I'm confused by that because I would have thought that would have said women don't teach men. That uh, would be the issue. Excuse me. I did say it wrong. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Women don't teach men. <laughs> right. Yes. Thank right. you. Right. Right. Um, Absolutely. And women are so active in any congregation that, you know, it really doesn't seem logical at all. And uh, But there are a few women that are, as I mentioned, just a handful that are senior pastors. Yeah. So now I have to ask a question from you as um, just in your own personal perspective. 
how do you hold together in a faith tradition one text that says there is no difference between men and women and a text that says women don't teach men? Um, how how can we – I mean in, in my Jewish tradition we have contradictory texts yeah. and, and I have a certain perspective. How do you hold together – to such clearly contradictory texts or seemingly contradictory texts. I, I try say. to to appreciate everybody there, but a absolutely gut level is I believe in the scriptures that says there's no difference. And so then where I, I have to ask you from just taking from here to a, a, a larger theological perspective what does that mean in terms of the authority of Scripture for you, that you're able to say this seems to speak maybe more of the voice of God than this? Is it all from God then, or does it speak of of us as well? Well, the answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I believe people are were inspired to write the Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. Right. And I believe that in that, that you study and as best you can understand why this individual feeling inspired by God wrote this letter or this book, whatever we'd like to call it. And that as that has gone on, uh, also you need to study what he was, probably he might've been a she, but probably he, what he was facing. Mm. And, uh, you know, you get over in uh, a new Testament scripture, which uh, I probably understand a little bit better than you do. I would hope so. <laughs> I do too. But uh, <laughs> but uh, there's some scripture over there that says that women do not dress up. They do not do their hair. They do not look good. And And I'm thinking, one time I was teaching that scripture in a Baptist church, and I'm looking around— <laughs> And there were a few of us old men that, that didn't look too good, but the women all looked good. Right. So I decided I need to study that. When that was written, probably, as best as we can determine, the only people that dressed nice uh-huh. were some of the elite people that were against any religious belief. But the greater ones that did that were probably prostitutes. Right, probably. Yeah. And so, but today we don't honor that, or very few people honor that. Interesting. So when you read scripture, there's that sense of not just reading the verse or verses or book itself, but also trying to surmise the context of that scripture and and trying to learn the lesson, not just from the text itself, but on a larger level from from where that text came from and why it said what it said at the time. Absolutely. Example. Old Testament, Ecclesiastes. They were having a terrible time in there. And as you read that, it talks about one might do this, but two might able to do other things, and then God could help be the third. And then you get over in the New Testament, the book of James was written by a pastor to a congregation. Uh And he says in the first chapter there, uh, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Well, a translation that is pretty good, it says, since all of you lack wisdom, (laughs) ask of God. (laughs) And so you understand a little bit better what he was saying when you realize he was the pastor of of a congregation. 
Although that's that's one that's that's certainly an extraordinary message for a pastor to to pass down from you know in the weekly sermon to say since you are all ignorant let me let me enlighten you. I'm not sure how long he served. Right. There. <laughs> so let me ask um, before we take our break. I mean, you mentioned the interfaith work, right? And and you and I first met through the ILA through the Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe, right? Which has been going in its its current form since 2007, and yes. um, and you've been really quite involved in interfaith work over the years, haven't you? So I, I'm wondering right. if you could tell me just something about that work before we take yeah, our Yeah, let me give you a little of the background. When I was, when Glorietta was a good, big conference center, we would have 50,000 guests spending the night wow. a year. And yes, it was a Baptist-owned, but we also accepted almost every Protestant denomination, Catholics, and yes, Jewish faiths to come and do their own programming. And I learned, hey, these folks are doing a great job. Right. And uh, I could name a couple of rabbis that I want, but I would say those are doing a great job. And I learned much from that. And uh, then I've served on the board for Habitat for Humanity, mm. on the board for I'm on the board now for Interfaith Homeless Shelter, as you know. Mm-hmm. You've been on that for a while. And then also I served not on the board, but I helped um, a short time with the YMCA, a short time the YWCA, and then I've been a longtime board member on Christian Camping International, which is interdenominational ministry. And I've already mentioned I've studied in seminary and just ever here, uh, Old Testament and New Testament. I'm not good at languages, but I pass Greek uh, and Hebrew. Uh. <laughs> the greatest thing, I think, or one of the great things about interfaith ministry is that every faith community has strengths mm. and areas that can be used by others and all are good people, mm. and it has changed my life because of interfaith interaction. Well, that's a that's a wonderful message for us to to just take a pause on because I I, I as president of the Interfaith Leadership Alliance, I I couldn't speak better about interfaith work <laughs> than that. I think so. We're going to take a a quick break. Um, you're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich, and my guest this evening is Larry Haslam, the former Baptist minister now working uh, with the Presbyterian Church. And we'll be back after this break. You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom, and my guest is Larry Haslam, former Baptist minister and now working uh, in with the Presbyterian Church. And we were we were talking before our break about interfaith work and and how. Interestingly to me, you you came into interfaith work by seeing the good of interfaith work already. And I think that's one of the things we're trying to do with the Interfaith Leadership Alliance is to really right. show everyone, you know, the amazing work that interfaith um, communities can achieve, like setting up the interfaith shelter, or we uh, recently set up the Faith Network for Immigrant Justice, right. and, and raising tens of thousands of dollars for good causes amongst our um, amongst our communities. I guess I wanted to ask, theologically speaking, about interfaith work. Um, the more I think about 
that kind of work, the more I think the people involved are making very powerful theological statements, um, particularly about the notion of truth. And one of the questions of this show is, is what is true? What interfaith statements, oh, sorry, what religious theological statements do you think interfaith work is making? I think it's fantastic, and I cannot imagine how it works so many years almost with one denomination without seeing the other. But three simple definitions. Mm -hmm. Faith, Mm -hmm. belief with something that cannot be absolutely proven. Ah. Grace, undeserved mercy. Truth, statements supported by evidence proven to be original or standard, and faith, of course, is in there. And then prayer for understanding, study. I've been very fortunate to have some very, a few very close friends that were Native Americans. In fact, I, uh, for years, I was very much involved with the person that is now the president of the Navajo Nation. Huh. He lived in Santa Fe in the 70s, and we were very close. And I like one of the sayings of Native Americans. To learn about me, you must walk one day in my moccasins. Right. I think that's part and a big part of interfaith learning, getting to know people that are not just like us, and then you find out they are just like us. An example— One year, uh, I had some opportunities to work with some Muslims. Mm -hmm. And it happened to be the the season of the year where they don't eat from sunrise to sunset. Mm -hmm. And I laughingly said I made the mistake of offering to take them to dinner. (laughs) They were a very hungry group. (laughs) Believe me, I learned a lot about Muslims. We have also had two short-term, I mean, Muslim ladies, college students living with us for a couple of weeks that were touring the United States. We had one of the greatest conversations I've ever had in my life with any theological deal with one of those girls. We still uh, email back and forth, and she's in a country that is really struggling, and we're not sure. She wanted to come back to the United States to get her doctorate, and she wasn't able to do it. But what you're talking about is that that connection of humanity. But I'm I'm wondering more about the connection of theology here. Right. Because when you you split split off faith, grace, truth, prayer, and study. Yeah. Um, and I have one question anyway about reconciling truth, sort of verifiable truth, and faith. And that yeah. that's one thing I I do want to approach. But also there's that sense of um, of of being able to say this is true for me and not necessarily I understand that that's not necessarily true for you. Right. I think that's a, a I for me I think it's an extraordinary statement to hold because so many people view religion as intolerant in the sense of there is only one truth. Yeah. And and I wonder where what you understand by truth especially given your your um interfaith work. I find that the more I learn, the more I see truth, and some of the things that I thought were true are not true anymore. And in theo- theologically, as you study the Bible, 
in whatever part you're studying, all of the Bible for me and all the Bible for you, uh, you find guidance in there and theology statements that help us see, wait, I never thought about that. Mm -hmm. What does that mean for me in 2018 instead of someone in 1,000 or somebody in 100 or something like that? And the more I have studied theological things like that, the more I realize that God has a plan. And I realized a long time ago something that I've never heard anybody else say. But to Larry, it was important. God has a job description. That's a local term. Right. But he didn't give me all of those traits. Uh Uh-huh. There's some of those he allows me to work with and and uh, some of the things that he normally does. But there's a lot of things that I don't totally understand because that is not in my job description. So now you've opened up a whole other <laughs> avenue here with, with the phrase, God has a plan. Yeah. Because God has a plan and to be really critical, I guess, God has a plan is very often a, pers- a theological perspective of the fortunate, yes. of the wealthy, of That's the healthy. Right. That's right. When you're living in a country where you are um, uh, tortured, where you are oppressed, where, you're, yeah. where you have very few rights, um, where your family are, are wounded or, or murdered or, or so on, where, where life isn't safe, it's much harder to see that God has a plan. So... So what does that mean on a global perspective to say God has a plan? Let me give you a a local perspective first. Uh, Growing up in a very blue-collar family in a church where I think we had probably had six people, including both of my parents, that had finished high school. Nobody had been to college. Very poor. Mm. Uh, We didn't know we were poor, but uh, we worked – Almost everybody in the community worked in a textile mill. I know my mom's take-home pay for 40 hours work, her take-home pay per week was $25. And so the the message from the pulpit Mm -hmm. was you're preparing for streets of gold. You're preparing for wonderful things that they got from the Scripture because the writers were writing to people much more poor than much much right. than I. Today, I've been fortunate enough to be in twenty different countries, and I've I've worked, you know, short time in a few of those, and I was able to see that the people that were in your community, our community, whatever community, had the greatest faith possible. Hmm. It makes my faith look like something that would fit in a thimble. <laughs> Because they don't know what if they're going to have a, another meal today. Right. But they have faith that if I don't, I'm going to be able to do something. And so the question you ask was God's plan. Uh-huh. It's much easier to see God's plan when you are doing I've never been really hungry in my life. Right. I enjoy eating every day. Right. But 
when you have missed meals and when you have a a baby that's sick, right. it takes a lot of faith. I have made the statement when I have read where someone did something illegal maybe uh, because they hadn't had any food or medicine for their children. Right. And I said, I'm a law-abiding pay, uh, person, but uh-huh. I don't know what I would do. I don't know anything I wouldn't do probably if I was trying to feed my family. And, and you bring in an, an important element here. I know we've only got a few minutes left, but but this idea of the human role in God's plan. So, I mean, we can look at human history and say, while there may have been advancements in some areas, health and education and, and so on, you know, the 20th century in particular was marred by mass slaughter oh. on, on an extraordinary scale. Yes. Um, is that part of God's plan? I think God allows some things to take place because of the action of us people. And I think that everything he would do, if we could be what we should do with him, it would be good. It goes back to prayer. In my definition of prayer, it's communication between individuals and God and not a monologue. Right. We talk a lot, and we know so little compared to what God, what I believe God knows. And so I think in prayer, he sp- speaks, not verbally, or at least he never has to me, <laughs> but gives direction and so forth and helps people cope with what's happening. Because in the Old Testament, when the temple was destroyed and people left, that was terrible, and they were gone a long time. Mm-hmm. I think it much of that happened because of the actions of the individuals. So then when does God intervene and say, you people have gone so wrong according to my plan that, um, that I have to step in? And, and how was the, the Holocaust? How was, you know, all of these terrible things, how was that not the point when God says, I, I gave you free will, but this, this plan has gone wrong. And, and I ask that question, I guess, with the biblical story of Noah in mind. Mm-hmm. When God says, you know what, the, the whole world is full of violence. I'm going to start again. If we hold any sense of that being true religiously, philosophically, theologically, why doesn't God do that again? Or is this actually part of the plan? Is that violence and transcending the violence part of the plan? I think God knows what we're going to do. I can't prove that. I think he knows what I call him he. I think he knows what God knows. But I think he also realizes that us human beings make so many dumb decisions that don't affect just Neil and Larry, but affects this. Mm -hmm. And some of those folks that are starving to death today they didn't make bad decisions. Somebody else did that led to that thing. I just I find this idea of God having a plan challenging. I understand it can be very comforting, <laughs> but, but also challenging in the sense of seeing so much difficulty in the world. And I wonder just any final thoughts from you on that. Uh, yes, one big one. I don't have the answer. Right, okay. <laughs> And and you don't either, or you wouldn't have asked no. <laughs> that. But um, I do feel that we've talked about prayer, that comfort comes from prayer. Mm-hmm. 
And I do remember as a teenager growing up in that community that had so much poverty and still does, I remember that on Sunday evenings, we would get together uh, and have fellowship and have potluck type things. And so the uh, uh, people would just be just give testimonies how grateful they were looking forward to dying because huh. everything would be perfect. Interesting. And I guess that's, that's that comfort aspect of, of yeah. the plan as well, isn't yeah, it? right. This has been wonderful. I, I really thank you, Larry Haslam. Thank you for, for joining me for a fascinating discussion. You're quite welcome. Thank you for the invitation. We might do this again. I, I hope so. I, I definitely hope so. So you've been listening to Soul Searching with Rabbi Neil Amswich with my uh, guest, Larry Haslam. I'm from Temple Beth Shalom, and we're also both from the Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe. And until we return again in two weeks' time, keep searching. <laughs>